The Old Testament lesson today is Micah 5, verses 2 through 5a. It can be found on page 931 of your pew Bibles. The word of God that came through the prophet Micah. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Testament lesson is from Luke 1, beginning at verse 39, and in the Pew Bibles it can be found on page 1025. This, this is the, um, this takes place just after Mary has had the visit from the angel. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, "'Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble estate of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me, call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him, from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. 
he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Um, I gotta thank Joanna for stepping in last minute for Jen this morning. Uh, and I don't know what it says about me how how much joy I take from her accidentally saying God's unforgiving love instead of forgiving love. But you don't get to see Joanna Wigboldy make mistakes that often. So, uh, but don't worry, God's love, Joanna, wherever you are, is forgiving. So. You're forgiven. Anyway. I also love the kid making a beeline to the front. That to me just felt like there's something right about that. That that eagerness. I know it's horrifying as a parent when your kid does that, but um all right. Well we are gonna dive deeper into Mary's Magnificat as this uh song is uh traditionally referred to. Magnificat being the, the Latin word that the song begins with. When she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Um, and uh, yeah, let's, let's pray together before we dive in deeper. God, you are so good to us. And uh, the depths of your mercy are incomprehensible. And even in uh, the the hard-hitting words, the uh, hopefully convicting words of a song like Mary's Magnificat, we see that it's all fueled by your mercy by your uh, great love for us and for all people and your desire to see creation flourish. And so, God, we come uh, like the kid running forward this morning. Uh, We come uh, with eagerness, and maybe for those who don't feel that eagerness, uh, at least an openness, Lord, uh, to your stirring, your spirit's movement in, in this place and in our homes and in our midst this morning. So, Lord, uh, as you speak through your word, which you always do, may we be open. Uh, And together, all God's people prayed. Amen. All right, so uh, Mary's Magnificat. Um, You know, I've got to turn in a sermon title by Wednesday at noon, and sometimes you, you pick a name, and then the sermon goes a different direction. I had picked The Visit. Uh, thinking I would highlight more kind of the the friendship between Mary and Elizabeth and then ended up shifting. The Visit's kind of a bland sermon title, although I think it might be the name of like a M. Night Shyamalan film, which makes it a little bit more interesting. But if I could go back and do it over, I might uh, 
call this sermon Mary's Manifesto or something, uh, something a little more provocative like Mary the Revolutionary or Mary the Marxist, question mark. Um, because this song that Mary sings, even though this time of year we hear it maybe on the radio or we, we sing it in worship, uh, the words are familiar to a lot of us. These are dangerous provocative, status quo-challenging words that young teenage Mary sings in the context of this visit to her cousin Elizabeth. And, uh, you know, some of my study on uh, Mary's Magnificat, on this song and the history of it, it's actually been banned in a number of countries, and there are certain Latin American countries in the 20th century, dictators who have banned churches from preaching on this song or this, this song being sung in worship. Uh, and, and just listen to the words. You, you can get a picture of how this could be threatening to a dictator uh, or, or anyone really who finds themselves in a position of, of power, who sits in the seat of oppression over others who are oppressed. Mary sings this. Singing of God, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud of heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. And he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. But he has sent the rich away empty. Can you see how that could possibly be upsetting to any, uh, I'm reading the book Cast right now, any sort of caste system where some people enjoy privilege at the expense of others. Some have talked about this as uh, the great reversal. Mary's singing of rulers, some translations say princes, being brought down from their thrones and the humble being lifted up. There's political revolution that's happening here. Others have written about this line, he has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. Another great reversal. It's about an economic revolution taking place. And other lines have to do with the democratization of religion, that it's His mercy extends to all who fear him from generation to generation. Again, scandalous things and even religious systems that privilege some over the other. And so uh, as we look at this story today, we'll we'll talk about the, in three movements, the, the what of revolution, what kind of revolution this is that God is bringing about through this Christ child, the where of revolution, namely for each of us to ask the question, where do I fit in, and where do we as a church fit in in this revolution? And then third, how, how then are we to live? So the what, the where, and the how. But uh, as we read this, this classic Advent text, uh, our, our, my main point, I guess, is that Advent is all about the anticipation of a revolution. Amen? Amen. 
So what kind of revolution is this? And, and we need to remember this is in the context of Luke's telling of the story of Jesus and in the context of we, we've been doing this a little bit out of order through Advent uh, chronologically. We've looked at the story of John the Baptist the last couple of weeks, and this actually happens right before John the Baptist uh, is born um, or, or three months before. Young Mary is visiting her cousin Elizabeth, and uh, Elizabeth is now six months pregnant uh, you know, Mary, some have, have wondered, could, it, could have been as young as 13 or 14 years old, which it was common at that point to uh, be that young and to be betrothed, to, to you know, engaged to be married. And she comes from this, this backwater, no-name, off-the-map small town. And now she has the scandal of uh, being pregnant outside of, of marriage, uh, and, and the cultural shame, I mean, really even the threat of being stoned to death, which was, um, you know, a, a, just this incredible pressure on this young girl, really. And she's visiting her elderly cousin, Elizabeth, who is experiencing her own miraculous birth, being elderly and now pregnant, And there's this beautiful visit and interaction that happens and all of this joy. And this is the context through which Mary sings this song of revolution. Young, marginalized Mary. Uso Gonzalez in his commentary uh, quotes a, a number of theologians and biblical scholars who write from the margins saying... Here, this is Chiara Lubish. Um, she says, Here we find the highest and most irresistible revolution. And she says that it's in these lines of Mary's Magnificat that the great charter of the social doctrine of the church is written. Um, a, another person, Jury Young Lee. Uh, in their book, um, Marginality, writes about, again, this, this scandal of Mary being uh, pregnant outside of marriage in a culture that had basically no tolerance for that. They write, Jesus was born to be a marginal person, marginalized from the time of his conception. And it's from this position, from this social location, that Mary sings of a revolution of what God is doing in salvation history. A revolution that the Old Testament prophets had had been preaching for generations. Of this great reversal of the, the mighty, the rich being brought low as the lowly, the humble are being raised up. Richard Rohr says, it's a most radical kind of prayer. For in it, she talks about religious, political, social, economic liberation. It's God bringing about justice and true peace. Not a false peace, as Martin Luther King Jr. says, which is really the absence of of conflict, but a true peace, which is the presence of justice. 
So that's the what of the revolution. Uh, but then, at this point, I can't help but wonder, where, where do I fit in in this? And I want to challenge you to wonder with me where you fit in in this. And uh, we don't all in this room share the exact same social location. Some among you are people of color, African-American, or of African descent. Some are men, some are women, some are LGBTQ+. There's different ways, that uh, different de- degrees to which we find ourselves on the margins of, of power and wealth in our country. But, you know, when I, when I do that assessment, I personally... I check all the, the boxes of privilege. And, uh, you know, I had this experience once. I was, um, I was a, a mentor at something called Duke Youth Academy for Christian Formation. This was in the summer of 2009, 2008. Um, so I was just out of seminary. And... Uh, it was something like, if you know, Facing Your Future um, with Calvin, a Lilly-funded program for high school students to come study with some of the best theologians in the world at Duke Divinity School um, on Duke University's campus. And we were uh, doing this, you know, I think we were praying the hours of the uh, Book of Common Prayer, uh, which uses some of this language from the Magnificat, and here I was in, you know, at Duke University among so many people of privileged state. And we had been serving in the neighborhoods throughout the day. The whole, the whole days were patterned around this monastic pattern of uh, worship in the mornings and service, um, or study in the mornings, service in the afternoons, and then worship in the evening. And so we had been going out into to neighborhoods uh, across the train tracks, so to speak. And uh, during this time of worship, we, we kept reciting this phrase about, God, let your justice rain down on the lands. And it was this refrain we kept praying, and all of a sudden, I had this moment of sort of waking up to the reality of, of what this meant for me in this position of privilege and power. And all of a sudden I was like, what are we praying here? What, what, if, we were, if we're serious about praying that God's justice would rain down on these lands, if we're serious about praying and, and singing Mary's Magnificat, of getting on board with this, this manifesto, this, this movement uh, that God is doing in the world in Christ of bringing down the rich and lifting up the poor, of stripping some of power and spreading that power among the powerless? Are we we praying our own downfall in some sense? And I wrestle with that, and I, I don't have that all figured out. I think, especially those of you in this room who do relate to being in positions of privilege and power. I think it's good that we're always wrestling with that. And at the same time, I find hope in, in you know, this language of great re- reversal. I wonder if it's, it's more fitting, perhaps, to talk instead of a great leveling that God is doing. 
Because I, I don't think God's intent is to, to rip down those of us with more wealth than the average person in this world, or more power, and to just flip the script so that now the oppressed are the oppressors and the former oppressors are oppressed. Maybe it's more fitting, instead of talking of the great reversal, to talk of a great balancing, a great leveling, a great equalizing. Richard Rohr talks about a, a horizontal horizontalizing that, that God is doing in this world. And, again, Rohr talks about, you know, he says, what does it mean for the rich to be sent away empty? He says, God sends them away empty because they don't ask for or expect anything from God because they're already full. And we see again and again in the scriptures, in, in places like the Beatitude, where it's blessed are the, the poor in spirit, or in Luke's version, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Where it says, these are the people, that it's the empty who are the ones who are ready to receive the good news of a vision of the world that is a vision of justice. They're ready to hear the word of God. They're ready to stop protecting the status quo in a way that the rich and powerful are not. They're ready for conversion. He says there's no harder group of people to preach to than white, middle-class American men because they're quite content with the way that the status quo is working for them. But might it be the case that this great leveling is actually freedom for all people, for not just the oppressed, but also for oppressors, not just for the poor, but perhaps even for the rich. Isaiah 40, 3 through 5, again, a familiar Advent text, which talks about a voice crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way. It's, it's a, a picture of John the Baptist's ministry. It gives us this picture. Every valley shall be lifted up. Then listen to this. Every mountain and hill made low. And the uneven ground shall become level. It uses that word level. And the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord, it says, shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. Might it be that this isn't just a big flip of the oppressors and the oppressed, but it's in this great leveling that is a world of justice. God will set all people free. You know, sometimes I I come across stories of people who who are moved by God to give away their wealth. I think of people throughout history like St. Francis of Assisi, who is, you know, this wealthy son of a rich fabric merchant, and how he, you know, his story, he ran around naked in the town square in Assisi, and then, of course, lived among the flowers of the field and took on a vow of poverty. And, And people do this still, even today, and probably God calls more of us to do this than, 
than we actually see. And I've never heard a story of anyone giving up all of their wealth and regretting it. Have you? Of, of someone coming to give away their, their mansions or their fancy cars and to live this life of incredible generosity. Every time I see that, I see it just marked with joy and freedom and a peace that comes from being freed of just all the trappings of, of uh, our consumerist society. And, uh, and might it be that even this is good news, God's invitation for those of us who struggle with greed, who hoard wealth to be freed of this. I was struck, I was scribbling this down when, when John Verno was opening the prayers of the people with these words from Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. How many of those of you like, like me who enjoy privilege and wealth don't know real rest because we're always go, go, going? And we don't know real peace because we're so afraid of not keeping up or of losing what we have. How many of us struggle with anxiety in the rat race of needing to perform and to be thought well of by others, to present a picture and an image of ourselves that others will approve of and accept? And might even our freedom be in the releasing ourselves of these things, our wealth and our power, and in coming down to the level ground of justice instead? You know, uh, Elizabeth, I love in the story, something I noticed is Elizabeth, as an, an older woman, in, um, and, and she's married to a priest, Zechariah, she probably, she's essentially like a pastor's wife, she probably had some, a little bit more status than Mary would have. And here she is, in a sense, bowing to this young teenager. And I love how she says to Mary, you are blessed among women and blessed is the child you will bear. And she says, but why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She's bowing and she's lifting Mary up. You see that? This honoring that she's bringing herself low to lift Mary up. And the tone is just one of joy. She next says, as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Might those of us who have wealth and power and and hoard these things, uh, as as Ronald Sider says, rich Christians in an age of hunger, might we be holding ourselves back from real joy? And from real peace. And might God long to free us in the great leveling of what God is doing in Christ. So we talked about what kind of revolution. Where do I fit in in this story? Where do we fit in? And then lastly, we'll just end with how shall we then live? I've been thinking a lot about what it means to, to in small ways, 
to, to decenter myself in conversations or to, to, to bow, uh, especially to people who find themselves more in the margins of society than, than I do. Um, and, and in some ways, it's, it's small things like singing Uya Imose in Swahili with, you know, Rob on the keyboard, and we're all kind of like, should we clap? And, you know, it's kind of this stiff, awkward, but we're trying. We're trying to stretch ourselves to decenter ourselves a little bit and just small acts like that. And, and we've got such a long way to go. I'm not saying, you know, we've done it, we've arrived, but just little things like that. Or I think about how, uh, again, that I'm, I'm realizing how most of my biblical commentaries that Jen and I use are written by old white men of European descent. And, you know, trying to be... And, and most of our bookshelf, really. I was looking at, at home, we've got... We, a big shelf with all of our fiction. Even our fiction is almost all old white guys. And here I'm thinking, like, oh, I'm, you know, I've got some classics in there. It's and some children's lit. It's so diverse. And and what does it look like? Jen's been. She listens to a lot of. She's got the Libby app, and she listens to a lot of novels. Um, and you know, she's really tried to. Mainly, almost all of what she's listened to this year has been stories by black authors or people of color, trying to just decenter herself. And 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 so the commentaries I'm looking at this week, trying to to read from people like Gusto Gonzalez and Kiara Lubeth and you know, Jury Young Lee, and and to see oh, there's a whole different way to read this. Ched Myers, one biblical scholar, actually talks about how. He says the scriptures are almost almost all of these sixty six books are written from the margins. Israel, remember, is a, a community of freed slaves out of Egypt who are always under the shadow of some empire, the Egyptians, and then it's you know the the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Persians, and then the New Testament. The church is this tiny persecuted community in the midst of the great Roman Empire. And it's written from the margins. And Ched Meyer says, perhaps it needs to be read from the margins to be correctly interpreted. And we see all sorts of ways, and I think of Christian nationalism in this country, and the ways that when we, we only hear readings of Scripture that come from position of power, and privilege, how distorted that can become. And how the gospel becomes a tool for maintaining control, maintaining the status quo, rather than this great... Like, I didn't... Growing up in my church, I didn't know these words of the Magnificat. It was just this nice Christmas thing that we sing and we all feel good about. But this is dangerous, potent stuff. How do we decenter ourselves? Just two other examples. I, th- I think of, you know, our, our anti-racism team had um, in our witness committee last year was looking at uh, this this movement happening in Grand Rapids that our classes is encouraging churches to get involved in. They're they're still haven't named the movement yet, but it's it's a movement uh, that comes out of the Micah Center and it's called it uses something called broad-based organizing, which is kind of a cool. You know, rather than beginning with an agenda, it's all these churches and organizations going out into their communities and just listening, asking people, what's on your heart? What keeps you awake at night? What, what sort of change? You know, tell us about your present reality and 
What's the present or what's the future reality you imagine for yourself and your perhaps family or community? And, uh, you know, our classes is really involved in this. Um, but our anti-racism team, and, and especially with the help of uh, Victoria Gibbs, who's an African-American consultant working with us, um, executive director of, of CORE, pointed out how, you know, this is still a mostly white-led movement. And Victoria, you know, said, I've been around this classes for 40-plus years. Uh, well, really, I mean, her father was involved, so really close to 70 years, and... And she said, I'm not convinced this isn't just another, every decade or so, another way in which white people have thought up how they're going to solve black and brown people's problems. And, you know, we, we're getting a lot of, like, people, other churches trying to, they've got t- 10 churches on board, and they're trying to get to 20 by the end of this year. And, and Tika Jones, you know, a member here and co-chair of our anti-racism team, um, she said, you know, I'm a member of the NAACP, and they're already doing a lot of, they've, they're well-established here, and they're doing a lot of the same kind of advocacy, political activism work, and what if we talk to them and maybe partner with them and submit ourselves to their leadership? And we had a great meeting with them over Zoom, I don't know, a week and a half ago, where we met with Clee Jackson, who's this vibrant, the, new, the president took over for the local chapter in 2016, uh, who's really just doing some great things with that, and three other staff people, and just listen to what they're doing and talked about what it might look like and ways that they get excited about Sherman Street Church, perhaps partnering with the NAACP, maybe some of us going to their monthly meeting on the third Tuesday, uh, which is coming up in a couple days if any of you are interested. We all on the anti-racism team went online and signed up for 30 bucks to get our annual membership, and we're still exploring that. But it's, it's, you know, perhaps one small way that it decenters us. Like, I would probably feel more comfortable being a part of this classist kind of led movement, right? That's mostly a white-led thing. And those people know me, and we share a certain language and educational experience. And, and it's, it's probably outside my comfort zone, I think it is, to be decentered. And, you know, if we choose to to partner with the NAACP and to be led by black leadership. But might that be what living out this kind of revolution, living into it, perhaps perhaps that's another way that God is working in us to, to take us down a notch from wealth and power to decenter ourselves as others who have historically been and, and continue to be oppressed are are being swept up in God's movement towards justice. The good news, after all, has to be good news for all, right? That God doesn't just want to free some, but God longs to free all of us. And that what God is doing in Christ, in the incarnation of coming into this world at the margins and through the cross and the resurrection and the ascension, this, this great revolution is about the, the flourishing of all people and God's invitation for all to know what shared justice and peace can be.
I want to quote, uh, end with a quote from uh, Fleming Rutledge. She's a, a well-known preacher, and uh, yeah, and, and then and we'll sing a song, and then we'll we'll come to this table. And some of my you know bonus in this quote that she ends with this language of God inviting us to the table, because in, in the table we find, of course, uh, equal footing before our God. But she writes this, What if it were true? What if there were news not only for the woman in the mink coat, but also for the man on death row? News not only for the fearful, but also for the numb. News not only for the homeless, but also for those of us who are afraid of the homeless. News not only for the would-be innocents, but also for those of us who know ourselves to be frauds. The Father has come seeking for all his children. And he has set a place at his table with your own name on it. Let's pray. God, may, uh, may the anticipation of Mary, may the anticipation of Advent, anticipation of the great revolution that you have brought about in Christ and that one day we know we will see manifest in full. Lord, may that anticipation be in our hearts and reflected in our lives. May it be shown in our bank accounts and our relationships and where we spend our time and how we see every other human being. Redeem us, O God, and set us free. And may we know you, the God of justice, just as humble Mary does. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.